Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher. Fill us, Lord. Guide us into your truths. Help us to understand this text and to see more of Christ in this text. Cause us to respond to this revelation of your servant that we would love him more, that we would worship him more. Lord, may you cause everyone here to be drawn closer to Christ through this preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, particularly chapter 12, there uh, the apostle details a series of conflicts between Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and the Pharisees. This is nothing new. We probably see this kind of conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus Christ, our Lord, uh, throughout almost all the Gospels. But in Matthew chapter 12, uh, the Pharisees, they were observing Jesus and his disciples and the things that they would do on the Sabbath day particularly. And the Pharisees were those who were more concerned for them about their Sabbath traditions, about keeping all the rules and the laws that they had basically built up, developed, so that they would not, as a people, violate the commandment to keep the Sabbath holy. And so they created all these traditions, all these laws, all these rules, and they were quick to uh, condemn or, or judge others when they broke those traditions. In fact, they, were more, they became so consumed by those traditions that they were more consumed by the traditions or more concerned by the traditions of, of their Sabbath rather than the Lord of the Sabbath who was actually in their midst. It came to a head one day uh, when Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. We read in chapter Matthew 12, verse 13 of this and following of this. And there was a man with a withered hand in their synagogue. A man who most likely had been attending the synagogue, some, a, a, a fellow Jew that like many of them knew. They knew probably what, how his withered hand came about as well. But Jesus, what did he do on that day? He healed that man with a withered hand in the synagogue. And instead of praising God for this miraculous healing, and even more, praising God for the very presence of the Messiah, that's what the healing, all his miracles attested to, that he was the Messiah, they went out, according to verse 14, and conspired to destroy him. What did Jesus do? Jesus, who was the Lord of Lords, the Son of God, he could have at any moment commanded a host of angels to come and destroy these Pharisees. Perhaps even we think about them and say, oh, that's what they deserve. But no, Jesus did not rise up to their confrontation. He did not call upon the angels to destroy them. But instead, he withdrew. He withdrew from there, and many people followed him. And as many followed him, Matthew records all with their various illnesses, with diseases, probably some demon possession as well. He, Matthew says he healed them all. Curiously, he warns them, verse 15 to 16, not to tell others who he was. They knew he was, who he was by the very attestation of his miracles. They knew he was the Messiah. They believed him to be the coming king. 
But Matthew records why this all took place. In verses 17 to 21 of Matthew 12, we read, particularly verse 17, that this, all this took place, was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And that's our book today. And then in verses 18 and 21, he begins and goes on, proceeds to quote the very first four verses of our chapter today, Isaiah 42. And so we come to understand that this chapter, Isaiah 42, particularly even at the very least the first four verses, but a little bit more, is a prophecy of the Messiah. Isaiah here in chapter 42 introduces us to what's called the first of four servant songs. These servant songs, these passages, significant passages of uh, Isaiah from 42, there's 49, 50, and then later on 53, including a little bit of 52. But those, these four servant songs are prophecies that describe the messianic servant of the Lord. God reveals to us through Matthew that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the servant of the Lord. Now, as we study this prophecy of the servant of the Lord today, we will learn that he alone, the Lord's servant alone, is our hope. He's our hope. He's not just the hope of the Israelites. He is definitely the hope of the Israelites. The Jewish people hope of him, hope in him. They are his chosen nation, his chosen people. But he's also the hope of the nations as well. All the Gentiles as well. He's the hope of all mankind as, we'll look, uh, as we look at the text. While Isaiah is primarily written to Israel, it was written back in 700 uh, some B.C., its truths speak to the heart of all mankind. Its truths are, are, are relevant and applicable to all of us. For it describes a salvation that begins with Israel but reaches the whole world. In Isaiah 40 to 66, the focus is here in these, uh, this latter section of Isaiah is on the deliverance of Israel from Babylonian captivity and the deliverance of Israel ultimately from sin. But this comfort of Israel that is described in these chapters ultimately find its focus on one person, and that is the Messiah. The comfort of Israel rests upon this coming of the Messiah, this Prince of Peace who would come, the servant of the Lord. And I pray that this morning as we look at this chapter, we're going to look at God's announcement, really, his pronouncement, his promise of his servant, the Messianic servant. And as we study this promise, we're going to observe a three-point outline. We're going to look at three responses to the promise of the servant of the Lord. And I pray that these are, these are responses that Israel were, were, uh, were called to respond. And I pray that for us today, that we also, as we behold the servant, will respond in these three ways as well as God works in our hearts. So let's take a look then at these three calls to respond. In verses 1 to 9 of chapter 42, the first nine verses, we find a call to hope. A call to hope. These nine verses form technically the first servant song. There are, I've already mentioned the four of them. This is the first of them. And let's read in 42 verses 1 through 4. Behold, my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. 
He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Verse 1 here, chapter 42, stands in contrast to the verse immediately preceding it in chapter, that ended chapter 41. You can look in chapter 41, verse 29 there, that it also begins with the word behold. There the Lord says of the gods of the nations, behold, all the gods of the nations, all the idols, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. See, in contrast to these hopeless gods of the earth who are nothing and can do nothing, stands God's servant. Behold, the idols are all nothing, but behold my servant who is everything. Behold, look at my servant is what God is saying to the nations. The natural question as we see this presentation of the servant, the Lord's servant, we ask, who is this servant? Who is this referring to? If you recall, back in chapter 41, verses 8 through 9, there, when God uses the phrase, my servant, it referred to Israel. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. He's talking about the nation of Israel back in chapter 41. In fact, later on, chapter 42, in verse 19, Israel is again referred to in the same way as the Lord's servant. And so it would be very natural because those who we study the word of God, we look to context and the context before and the context after seem to identify the servant as Israel, the nation of Israel. Certainly it would be a good uh, uh, theory that this reference to the servant is also a reference to Israel. But when we look at the immediate context of these verses, not just the verses in the chapter before and later on down, but when we look at just the verses surrounding them, just verses 1 to 4, we find here a servant that is completely unlike the servant Israel, the nation of Israel. We find a servant here that is perfect. We find a servant that is nothing like the complaining, fearful, blind, deaf, and disobedient Israel. He instead is, is just. He is gentle, and he is faithful, completely the opposite of what Israel was. And this contrast between the servant here in verses 1 to 4 and the servants in the 41 and later on 42 clues the reader that this servant is someone else, someone special. We've seen in other places in Isaiah already this promise of the Messiah the, king, uh, the prince of peace who would come, the eternal father, wonderful counselor, the son that is born of a virgin. We've seen these different prophecies already. But we learn here, or we will learn here, that this verse, these verses 1 to 4, is a reference to the Messiah. This, of course, is confirmed for us through pro- progressive revelation. In Matthew, and just as we read in the Matthew, where it tells us that those verses, verses 1 to 4, were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So progressive revelation reveals to us that truth, confirms for us that this is speaking of Jesus. This servant embodies all that Israel ought to be, but is not. 
Verse 1, as we look at who this servant is, this messianic servant, it reveals that he is one who is upheld by God. He is chosen by God. He is delighted in by God. He is filled with the Spirit of God. And what for? What what is the purpose for all this? Then to verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Two other times, in fact, justice is mentioned here in verse 1 to 4. This is a, a key idea here that the Lord, the Messiah, is coming to establish justice to the nations. Now, this word justice is unlike, is, is what it's, well, first of all, it's a buzzword that we like to use today in our, in our churches and in the world. Oh, we all should be about justice. It's kind of like how love used to be the buzz. We're all about love and justice. You know, that's, you know every, who isn't against love and justice? Everybody's for that. But when we try to, when we apply our modern day definition of justice, which is basically just righting the wrongs in this world, that's an inadequate definition of justice in the Bible. Justice in the Bible includes that. It does include righting the wrongs of this world. But justice in the Bible is, goes beyond that. It actually extends to referring to a government that is ruled justly, rightly, and fairly. It's about a ruler who rules justly, rightly, fairly. The servant here is one who will establish such a government over all the earth. When we think of governments, we, I mean, we live in San Francisco. We're all into politics. We follow politics. You probably, you know, get into that. If you, you know, I was in Seattle. I never followed politics. But when I moved into the city, I just go, oh, I got wow, everybody's into politics. I got to follow that. And it just kind of became my hobby, too. It's like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But I think too many people, and I know even among ourselves as Christians, put our hope in government. Too many of us put our hope in government. You know, when the, and, I, and I get it. We pay taxes. We pay tax rates. So when there's a problem... Was a pothole in my street? Who should fix it? The government, right? I, you know, that's what I think. I pay taxes. And so when we have big problems in our nation, who should fix it? The government. Our hope is in the government to fix the problems of our society. And there's a, there is an extent to where God uses government as, a, as his servant to his, for his purposes. But our hope should not rest on our government. There is no perfect government, as you, know, you and I know. Even within our own government, our leaders constantly disagree on what is the best way to run our country. They debate and dialogue for days and months on complex issues. They debate on and on. And once in a while, it's kind of cool, they, they actually agree on something. They get something done. They, they pass something. And the solution is found. But you know what? Four years later, someone else comes into office, and then that's changed. And, it, you know, it's kind of cool when you get in your 40s at RMS. I'm starting to get the pattern. I'm starting to see, oh, you know, all the hope that I used to put in government, oh, that's foolish. And that's why 20-something-year-olds, you guys all get excited about government politics because you don't see the cycle yet. And then you get there like, oh, man, it's like this endless cycle. And we learn that, that though government is a servant of the Lord for good, and, and I want to, don't, don't make a mistake, that I'm t- I want us to submit to government. I want us to obey government. I want us to honor government. But let us not hope in government. Hope in the Lord's servant. Hope in Christ. That's what this text is calling us to do. He is the hope of the nations. He's the one that we are to hope in. Verses 5 to 7, God addresses the servant directly. And there, uh, the Lord God is speaking. Thus says God, the Lord. In fact, the Lord God is speaking throughout this whole chapter. 
the one who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Our creator God here promises to assist and watch over the servant. He kill, he, in other words, he will ensure that the servant fulfills his purpose. It's why we can hope in the government, the justice that he will bring, because the Lord God will be behind him. In fact, we see that the Lord says he is behind him in verse 6 particularly, tells that what he will accomplish in him. He says, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. His, nation, his mission, the servant's mission, begins with Israel. You see that word, the people? It's kind of cool. It's kind of sort of significant if you haven't learned it yet. Whenever you see this word, the people, in the Old Testament, if it's singular, more often than not, most, in majority of times, it's a reference to the people Israel, the nation Israel. But when you see the word the peoples, plural, that is a reference to the nations, the Gentiles as a whole. And that's generally uh, how it's used throughout the Old Testament. And so we see that the Messiah will come to fulfill the covenant promises that God had made to Abraham and his descendants. He's going to be the one who completes all those promises that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David. He will complete it for his people, the people, the Jews, the Jewish people. But the servant's mission, you notice at the end of verse 6, goes beyond Israel to include, of all people, the nations. I will appoint you not only as a covenant to the people, but as a light to the nations. God has made no covenant with the nations, but he's, he's sending, he will send out the servant as a light to the nations. He will bring the light of truth to the Gentiles. Later on in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, um, God, he will say this. This is the, the second of the servant songs. God will say to his servant, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to reserve, restore the preserved ones of Israel. He says, oh, It's too little for you just to save Israel, basically. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And I love this. It's highlight that one because that's, that's for us Gentiles. God says, my salvation, it's not just going to be for Israel alone. It's going to extend to the ends of the earth, to all the nations of the earth. That's the promise of God. That's the, the promise that he has made to be and appointed the servant to fulfill. This is why he came. You know, when we look at our world, there are so many things wrong with it, isn't there? You don't even need to look at the world. Just look at our, your own life. We can introduce, we just stop with our own life. We can see things that are wrong with our world. Things that just, that we would wish would be made right. But the root of all these problems, if you understand what the Bible teaches, that all that is wrong in this world and in our lives is the result of the curse of sin. 
whether it's our own personal sin or whether it's the sins of our forefathers, Adam, or our parents, Adam and Eve, or whether it's sins of others around us all the, or the, and, the corruption of, and the corruption of that sin all point back to its source in sin. Sin is in this world. Sin reigns over this world. But God has chosen his servant to come and to save us then and to set us free then from sin. And he does so for his glory. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. God says here that he will not let idols steal his glory. He's not going to let his glory be, t- be claimed by anyone else. And that's why he reveals the promise of his messianic servant. That's why he reveals here of the new things that are going to take place regarding the Messiah. And before they spring forth, before they take place, he proclaims it to them. This prophecy of the Messiah, which Matthew is then going to say was the, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, is made 700 years before Christ's birth. And this is just one of the many prophecies in Isaiah alone about Christ. And these prophecies, especially when fulfilled at the first coming of Christ, give testimony to God's power, God's wisdom, and God's glory. You see, no other God does that. No other so-called God does that. And the response to this, this revelation of, this, of these prophecies is that we ought to hope then in him. Don't hope in gods that are false. Hope in the one God who brings all things to pass that he promises. Especially hope in his servant who is given to shine light in our darkness. To come and save us from our sins. Hope in him. And we... We hope it's so many things in our world. We, when I was a young man, a young child, I, I just hoped that I would just grow up and, and get older and graduate from college. and get, Then I can leave my parents home and I'll be happy, you know. I was hoping that. And then when that happened and I moved out and then my next thing was, oh, I hope that I will get married and then I'll, I'll be happy. And then... Uh, then I might hope after that I got married and, and I thought, so, oh, I hope I'll have children and, and then I'll have children and that will make me happy. And now that I have children, I'm hoping that they will grow up and become, you know, fine adults in this world and not constantly depend upon me. Uh, <clears throat> and then I'll be happy. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and, it's a, and they're probably hoping the same thing. And it's in a circle. We hope so many in the things in this world, whether it's government where there's different life events and stages that we look forward to. We, we think our hopes in them. We think that that's what's going to make us joy. It makes us, give us a sense of that all things are right. But all these things of our life, they are all going to be tainted in one way or other by sin. They are not meant to fulfill your hope. Only Christ is meant to fulfill your hope. Hope in him. Now with the promise of the servant then, made in verse 1 to 9, two imperatives are given. One in verse 10 the other in verse 18. These are, each respectively provides the second and third responses to the promise of the Lord's servant. The first uh, command we find in verse 10, and then it calls, it <clears throat> calls us to respond with worship. 
we find a call to worship. That's our second point. Read verses 10 through 13 with me. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell on them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. The settlements of what Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry, and he will prevail against his enemies. See, the nations here, it's pretty clear. I hope you can see it, are called upon to sing to the Lord a new song. They sing a new song to him. The Gentile nations are called to come and worship him. Now, the idea of a new song in the Old Testament is basically that of uh, when, when the people of God come to a, a fresh realization or a fresh display of the goodness of God or God's character, then they are to respond with a singing truths about that new about that new realization or display. It's like responding to new truth and singing about it. That's kind of this idea of a new song. Even it could be an old song, but when you come to understand a truth and you see that truth in the song, that's like singing a new song. In this case, the new song, the new truths, is a response to the new things that were declared by the Lord about the Messiah in verse 9. That the coming of the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, as a light to the nations, as a hope of the Gentiles. This is a, why the Gentile nations ought to sing a new song. So why would, can we sing a song? That's, that's, a gent, that's the Israelite, Israelite God. But when we realize that he came for the nations, we can sing a new song. We can come and worship this Lord, the creator of all heavens and the earth. And that's what uh, <clears throat> the rest of the, these verses call for. They call the nations, whether they are near, whether they're far, to come and worship God. The nations uh, from the ends of the earth, the beyond the sea, the faraway islands are all called to sing in verse 10. And then in verse 11, the Gentiles who are nearby, those who are in the wilderness across the Jordan, those who are in the Kedar, that is the descendants of Ishmael nearby, the, from Selah, that is the descendants of Moab, that is also nearby surrounding the land of, of promise. These are all called to worship. So whether they're near, whether they're far, all these Gentiles are called to praise the Lord and sing to him a new song. But what is the occasion for this praise? It's found in verse 13. There we read, because the Lord will defeat his enemies. He will prevail against his enemies. At first glance here, this should seem odd if we've been reading this passage from beginning to this point. Because if this is all about uh, uh, the, <clears throat> the Messiah coming, it seems odd to us that this description, the why the nations are to sing praise to him, is because the Lord's going to come like a warrior. He's going to come like a man of war. He's going to come He's gonna, with a war cry, and he's going to prevail. He's going to defeat his enemies. This is a violent coming of the Lord. But that doesn't match up with verses 1 to 4, does it? When we read in verse 1 to 4 of the chapter, he says, he will not cry or raise his voice. His voice won't even be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. This Messiah in verses 1 to 4 comes with gentleness, with humility. But this, this Messiah here, when he comes in verse 13, comes with wrath. 
with anger, with destruction. How do we reconcile this? We come to recognize this because this is a, this, in this very same chapter, we see references to Christ's first coming and his second coming. Again, it is uh, progressive revelation. For the prophets of the Old Testament, when they, had, uh, when they made these prophecies and when they talked about the coming of the Messiah, they would see the events almost as if far away. Like two mountains in the mountain range far away. They... Far away, they look like they're next to each other, don't they? But as you draw closer to the mountain range, you start realizing that one mountain is much closer, and there's a huge valley between that and the other mountain. And you realize they're really not that close. They're actually far apart. And that's what it's like with the first and second coming of Christ. That from far away in the Old Testament, when they looked at it, it all seemed like it was all one thing, one event. But as we draw closer to the New Testament with progressive revelation, with the revelation of the New Testament, we come to understand that the first coming of Christ is quite different from the second coming of Christ that is much later. And so in verses 1 to 4, when we talk about the, uh, the gentleness of the, of the Savior, of the servant, when he comes with humility, it's a reference to his first coming. That's why Matthew quotes verses 1 to 4 there in, in chapter 12 of Matthew. But when we arrive here and we hear this destruction, this, this wrath that is coming, this is a reference to the second coming. Think the book of Revelation that many of you studied in, our, in your Sunday school class. There's wrath that is coming when the Savior comes again. This second coming, this coming to, to bring judgment in his wrath for, upon sin and sinners is further elaborated in verses 14 to 17 of Isaiah chapter 42. Read along. I have kept silent for a long time. Again, this is the Lord God still speaking. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now, like a woman in labor, I will groan. I will both gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and wither all the vegetation. I will make the rivers into coastlands and dry up the ponds. I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. In paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do, and I will not leave them undone. They will be turned back and be utterly put to shame who trust in idols, who say to molten images, you are our gods. We see here a part of God's character. We see here God's patience. God had, for a long time, kept silent with Israel. He kept still. He restrained himself. Though time and time again, they disobeyed him. They they did things that were worthy of judgment, yet he restrained his judgment upon them. This recalls to us even the the quote from 2 Peter 3, 9, that the Lord is patient towards you, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that is why even now the Lord is patient toward mankind because he does not wish any to perish but for all to come to repentance. But his patience will come to an end one day. At his second coming, he will come and he will lay waste. He will wither. He will dry up this world. There will be a judgment that will affect this whole world. 
But even then, when he comes in judgment, we see in verse 16, there is hope for the nation still. Verse 16 describes how he will lead the blind by a way they do not know. He will lead them by paths that they also do not know. He will make darkness into light for them. He will save them. He will save those who put their trust in him. Those who turn to him in trust. And what's more, he reinforces this with a promise at the end of verse 16. I love it. These are the things I will do, and I will not leave them undone. You know, God's word is powerful. God's word, when he speaks, is true. He doesn't need to say it again. He just simply says it, and that's a promise. But God here, oftentimes understanding us, even when we have the word of God, we, we, we don't believe him. We're people of unbelief. And we say, oh, Lord, I know your word says that, but I, you know, I'll help my unbelief. And we pray that sometimes. But I love it. God understands our weakness. And here he gives a, a word of assurance. These are the things I will do. And I will, and I will not leave them undone. That's a, you can highlight that stuff. That's promises of God. These are the things I will do. What God says, I will do. And he will not leave them undone. He's going to save those Gentiles. Even as he, the judgment comes, he's going to have mercy upon those who turn and trust in him. This uh, promise was first made to the Gentiles, even back in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. Remember Isaiah chapter 2, way back when? That it will come about in the last days that many people's People, plural there, will come and say, they'll come to Jerusalem, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There the Messiah will be when he returns. And there, at that time, at the second coming of the Lord, the nations are all going to go to there because that's where they find truth. That's where they find light. That's where they find the path and the way to live their lives. But not everyone will be allowed in. Not anyone who just said, well, I'm just going to go into Jerusalem. I'm going to go in... in Listen to him. Back to our text in verse 17 of chapter 42. There's a, there is a, a warning here. They will be turned back. There are going to be people who can say, no, you're not allowed here. They will be turned back and will be utterly put to shame. Who are these people? These are those who trust in idols, who say to molten images, you are our gods. Those even in the millennial kingdom, those who come to the Lord, unless they come believing and trusting in him alone and in his servant, they will turn back. Salvation has always been, will always be through faith in Jesus Christ. And those who come and believe other gods, who worship other anything else or anyone else, but God and his servant will be turned back. They will be ashamed. All you can imagine, all the nations approaching, but then everyone will be, everyone will be stopped. And say, no, you're not allowed here. Shame of that. But those who trust in Him will enter into His presence and will worship Him. They will sing a new song, and that ought to be our response to the Messianic servant. That should be our response. Just think about it. You and I today have the great privilege of doing what some will long to do. In the millennial kingdom, 
They will want to enter in to worship the king, but they will be turned back. But everyone here who have come into this presence, who have believed upon Jesus Christ, who have put your faith in the servant, you get to freely worship the Lord together. We get a foretaste of that. We worship him here. The sad thing is some of you, and and I hope it's few of you, have come into these doors and you are here, but you do not worship him. Outwardly, you sing the songs, you give your offerings, you stand up, you sit down, you talk to people, but in your heart, you do not trust the Lord. You've been trusting in yourself or in other things. You must, and this leads us appropriately to the third response. The Gentiles will turn to the Lord and worship him. But what about Israel? What about the chosen nation of God? His chosen people, what will they do? Will they, are they forgotten? Have they been replaced? No. They here in verse 18 to 25 are going to be called to repent. Verse 18, look at verse 18 with me. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. We see again the sec- our second set of commands. Hear and look. This is a call to repentance. Deafness and blindness are metaphors for unbelief in the scriptures. In fact, back in chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, and I won't read it for you, but you can see just the underlines that the word, this idea of seeing, hearing, understanding, and returning, returning is another word for turning, which is, means repenting, are all synonymous. When you hear the word of God, when you see the truth, when you understand it, when you return, return that is the description of repentance, turning from sin and turning to the Savior, the Lord, his servant. The Lord then proceeds then to identify who are the deaf and blind. Who is this deaf and who is this blind that God calls to hear and to look and to repent? Verse 19 and 20 reveals it for us. Who is blind but my servant? Or so deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is so blind as he that is at peace with me? Or so blind as a servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open, but none hears. Whoa. Again, we see, we see again here the mention of the Lord's servant, right? It's also called his messenger. But upon initial reading, if we're not careful, one can readily think that God is saying this, that the messianic servant himself is somehow spiritually blind or deaf. And that's wrong. That's blasphemy. That's not the case here. Instead, the Lord is using my servant as he did back in chapter 41, verse 8. As a reference to Israel. In the chapters ahead, as we start coming across more and more of these references to the term my servant or servant of the Lord, we, when we as students of the word, must look to context, especially the immediate context, because chapter context may not help because <laughs> even within the same chapter, the word's going to be, may be used or the phrase may be used in two different ways, one referring to Israel, one referring to the Messiah. And so we have to keep this in mind. And this is kind of for us, this Bible study helps for us. 
course, our English translation will help us a bit. You know, just look for the lowercase s or the uppercase s, and that kind of clues us in. But that's not consistently true. Uh, We'll see that in some of the chapters ahead. But in these verses, Israel is meant. In contrast to the perfect messianic servant, Israel has been an imperfect servant. It has been alone blessed with being God's covenant people. No one else is God's covenant people like Israel. They have been privileged to be called to be the Lord's servant. They have been privileged to be, bring the light of the truth of their God to the nations of the earth. They have been privileged to experience his blessing so they may be blessed others. They have seen God's power through their nation's history. But sadly, they lived as if they had not observed a single one of them. Making it even worse, Israel, as God's servant and his messenger, was blind and deaf to the law of God that they possessed. They had the law of God in their hands. They had, the, primarily referring here to the Mosaic law that God gave Israel through Moses. And this law here is called, it's called great and glorious. The law is good. And though they had this great and glorious law, they had the very word of God. Just think about the powerful the power of the word of God. God merely speaks the word and all creation comes to be. And he gives this word, he records it through Moses, and Moses gives it to the people of God. They have this great and glorious law. But even though they have the great and glorious word of God, they fail to obey it. And then worse, because they fail to obey it, they don't share it with others. They aren't a testimony to the nations. And before you and I are too quick to judge them, we can always use a bit of humility to look at ourselves. Here we all are. We have Bibles, multiple versions, multiple copies, readily available at the finger fingertips even through our phones and iPads. We, many of us here, hear multiple sermons, lessons, and Bible studies throughout the week. But are we not like deaf and blind Israel when we do not obey nor live by them? Are the words even that we're hearing today, are they going in through one ear and then going out the next, going out the other? Are we here singing God's truths and just being moved by them? Oh, that's so awesome. I love these truths. They're great. Yeah, I love Jesus. And then we're silent about those truths when we're out there. If so, or if we are giving lip service to God's truths, but in reality our hearts are far away from him, we need to repent. Israel needed to repent, for they gave lip service to God, and, but their hearts were far away. But they needed to repent and turn back to him. And that's what we need too, if our hearts are far away from him. We need to wake up, especially as the people of God. We need to wake up before the Lord will discipline us. That's exactly what happened to Israel. Because they time and time again, they disobeyed the Lord. He punished them by taking them out of the promised land and sending them into captivity. In fact, dispersing them to captivity all over the Babylonian Empire. Although written 
in the 7th century BC, verses 22 to 25, is a warning to all those Israelites who would live during the exile some 150 years later, from 586 to about 516 BC. Listen to these words and listen as if you were in exile, thinking about it as these Israelites who were in exile, then what God is saying to them. Verse 22 to 25, but this is a people plundered and is spoiled. So they're wondering, why are we here? Why are we in captivity? Why are we enslaved? Their children might be asking these questions. All of them are trapped in caves or are hidden away in prisons. They have become a prey with none to deliver them and a spoil with none to say, give them back. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? Who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel to plunderers? Was it not the Lord? against whom we have sinned, and in whose ways they were not willing to walk, and whose law they did not obey. So he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle, and it set him aflame all around. Yet he did not recognize it, and then burned him, but he paid no attention. God explains here that the Israelites were plundered and captured. They were hopeless. They were without anyone to come and rescue them. There was no Abraham like to Lot. They were in captivity and they were dispersed and they were without hope. And But God challenges the future Israelites that if they would learn from their captivity, they would learn from why they are in captivity, that they would learn that the reason why they are in captivity is because their forefathers, their ancestors were sent there because they sinned against God. They would realize that God sent us here. The Lord God sent us here because against him we have sinned. And in his ways, we were not willing to walk. And in his law, we did not obey. That's why his wrath was poured out upon us, upon Jerusalem, and our city was destroyed with fire, and all of Israel was taken into captivity for a period of 70 years. It's because of the Lord disciplined us. The warning is clear. Don't be like Israel in the past. Pay attention to God's word. Do not sin against him. Walk in his ways. Obey his law. Repent and renew your walk with him is the call for Israel. And that call can be applied to many of us today. If you're here and you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, these words can apply to you too. If you're not a believer in Jesus the Messiah, God wants you to repent as well. He wants you to repent from your sins, to turn away from your sin, your way of life. Turn in faith in his servant, Jesus Christ. For God has sent him into this world to shine light upon your darkness. That's what our sins do. Our sins cast darkness over all our lives. It affects us. It corrupts our lives condemns us to death, eternal as well. Jesus Christ, though, came to die for your sins. We find this in the fourth servant song in Isaiah 53, verse 5. There, the servant, the suffering servant, the Messiah, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. See, the Lord died on the cross. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was chastened. He was scourged. 
so that we might be healed from our sins, that we might be saved from our iniquities. And if the Lord is revealing this to you, if you're here and you've been listening to the preaching of the word here for a while, and you've got, you, the Lord is showing you that you, the way you have lived your life has led you astray, you've gone your own way, and you realize that that road leads to a dead end. And the Lord is opening your eyes to the truth. You're hearing it now that you understand that the Lord has caused your sins to fall upon his servant. That's why his servant came. Then today, open your eyes and ears and hear what the Lord's promise of his servant calls for you to do. And that is that you would put your hope in him, that you would worship him, that you would repent from your sin and trust in him. And be saved. This is what God calls of you. Now for the majority of us here. Are, who are believers in Jesus Christ. I hope that as we have studied this passage. We've studied this first servant song. We will leave here more amazed with the Lord God and Jesus Christ. That we would love him more. That we would love him even more than we did when we walked in these doors. We love the Lord, love Christ. In time this way, this text, in this, uh, back to Matthew chapter 12, it would be a very sad thing here if we as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, are like the Pharisees, who end up caring more about our Christian traditions than our Christ. We come to church. We participate in church. We spend time with people in church. But all the while, we do not know, nor do we grow in our love for the Lord of this church. That's what the church exists for, to show us the Lord of this church, the head of this church, who is Jesus Christ. But a lot of times, we get caught up in the traditions of the church, I do as well. Many times we're caught up more, being more concerned about the food or drink that our people are holding in their hands, how people are coming in dressed for service, whether they have an actual printed Bible or in their hands or not. We're more concerned whether they, uh, with whether they come on time. We are more concerned with the outward things, the traditions. We're concerned about whether they go to Sunday school class rather than whether they know Christ and whether they are growing in Christ. Are they walking with Christ? Are they hoping in Christ? Because we all can come in here. We can all outwardly look like we're worshiping, but inwardly, we can be far away. And what do you want people to think of when people come into these doors, Christians? What do you want them when they, people come in here? Our visit, so many visitors with us this morning. I want to thank all of you for being here and joining us. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you can worship with us. But I wonder if I did a little survey of them. Say, so what did you gather from your time with us this morning? What is it that we want our visitors and guests to learn from, to learn about when they come in our midst? 
We want them to know what? What, is the, what would be the sign that we want to paste in front of the walls and every door in this, in this, ho- in this house? Don't bring food or drinks in here. I hope not. Instead, when you come in these doors, when you worship with us, this is where you can know Christ. This is where the servant is revealed. This is where people come who are sinners, who, who recognize our fallenness and our, our hopelessness. Here is where we come and find hope. Here is where we come find salvation. Here is where we come find forgiveness. Because here is where we find Christ. And this is the Christ that we have come to know. And this is the Christ that if you don't know, we want you to know. May the text this morning cause us to be people who love Christ more. Not to be like the Pharisees. But when they saw the Savior, the Lord of the Sabbath, they were more concerned about their traditions. Let us be in love with the Lord of the Sabbath. Not the traditions of this church. And when we behold the servant, we will hope in him, worship him, and repent of our sins. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for our time. Pray that you would speak to each one here what we need to hear. Lord, wherever we are at in our relationship and our walk with you, cause us to heed your word. Cause us to respond to this promise of the servant that we would always put our hope in him that we worship him, Father, that we would repent of sins and put our trust in him. Father, may you continue to do a work in this church. Make us more of a light that you have called us to be. It would be a light to the nations and the hope that we have found in the servant, your servant, would be the hope that we live and manifest and proclaim in our world. Father, help us to do so for your glory. Thank you, Father, for making this all come to pass in your power and wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.